Episode 4, Nicole Meehan, Immigrant and Founder of Immigration Solutions, LLC. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB-5 superhero, Nicole Meehan, immigrant and founder of Immigration Solutions, LLC. Nicole Mian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Matt. Nicole, you're truly a wonder woman in the EB-5 space. Let me brag about you just a bit. EB-5 superhero attorney, Nicole Mian, you are the founder of the Immigration Solutions LLC. You have a whole list of initials after your name, B-A-M-S-J-D-M-A-L-L-M-M-A, which spelled degrees from Harvard University, Brandeis, Boston University, School of Law, Northeastern University, City University of New York. You were educated in five countries, Italy, Switzerland, England, Mexico ago in the U.S. from the age of 13. Obviously, you speak English, but I believe you also speak native Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and have working proficiency in French. You have a long list of, of over 30 awards, at least that I know of. Top immigration attorney, top woman attorney, rising star, the list goes on and on. And I even remember you telling me something about going on an archaeological dig. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about you. How did you, you know, get into this EB-5 space? Tell us about your background. And obviously, you have all these superpowers, these languages, and this amazing multicultural background that you've got. Tell us a little bit about yourself and even that archaeological dig. Well, I guess, you know, I was just lucky. I was lucky because the languages, I had the privilege of learning them on site, so in situ, and uh, and therefore they came easy for me. I mean, obviously, when I went to study in Switzerland, it was the French part, speaking of Switzerland, and so in order to communicate with the locals, I had to learn French, and obviously, when I moved to England, there was English uh, that had to be mastered, and Mexico Spanish and the Portuguese actually it's funny because I did not it was the only language I didn't learn in a country either Brazil Portugal or Angola I actually learned it in the United States because I had a lot of friends who were Brazilian and spoke Portuguese so my Portuguese is really Brazilian Portuguese and I must 
I admit that I cannot write it, but I can speak wow. it fluently. So tell us about the, the archaeological dig. Tell us about your background, I think, in criminology. Tell uh, us more about the writing things. So I always had an interest in criminal law. My mom wrote her dissertation when she was in law school about capital punishment. She's in favor of it. So I had an interest not so much as in capital punishment and criminals, but so much as to how to rehabilitate criminals, how to bring them back into society as productive individuals. I'm a sixth generation attorney in my family, so on my mother's side. So of course, uh, my grandfather and my mom told me not to go to law school, which I guess was a great incentive to go. <laughs> and I'm very happy I did. My my upshot has always been trying to help people to make their life better. And immigration law was a great segue for me because it allowed me to help people. It allowed me to practice law and it allowed me to use my language. So it was really a great, a great fit for me. Now I have other passions. I love ancient history. I love archaeology. And so I have been sometimes so when I travel for work to speak about the EB-5, it allows me to go on a segue and go on um, archaeological digs or tours. So the one that I think you're hinting on is that I went to Iran. Um, wow. I think I was one of the of a few women, Jewish women, to go to Iran and tour it extensively and visit these archaeological sites. And I must say, it's a wonderful country. It has wonderful people and an awful regime. But mm-hmm. it allowed me, and also I have a lot of clients who are from Iran that want the EB-5. Obviously, they want their children. Well, most most of I find, at least my EB-5 clients, they want the green car not so much for them, but for their children. They want to offer mm-hmm. their children a better future. So can someone from Iran uh, go through the EB-5 program and get a green card for their family to come? Are there any sanctioned countries that aren't allowed to get EB-5? Well, the problem with Iran is the money. So there is no banking relationship between Iran and the United States. So a lot of the money, it's very hard to trace. And even when the money is uh, wired out of Iran, it can only be wired to certain countries. So the source of fund becomes very hard to demonstrate. Another very big obstacle with Iranians is that obviously, because most of them, when they apply for the EB-5, they are still in Iran. There is no U.S. embassy, as you know, Matt, in Iran since 1979. And therefore, they can't go for an interview. And lately, because of COVID, it has become even more problematic because a lot of the Department of State staff. The Department of State sent staff to all the consulates in the embassy. They've been recalled because of COVID and embassies and consulates have been shut down. A lot of them are still just operating on emergency services. So what happened is that for third country nationals like Iranians, they usually would go to Yerevan, Armenia, or they would go to Dubai, or they would go to Turkey. And unfortunately now, Turkey is, at least in my experience, is not a in them. Dubai is only doing processing visas for their own people. And Yerevan, so far, is not even processing visas for Armenians. And again, wow. this is because of COVID. And therefore, what happens is that people are eligible to get the green card through the EB-5, but they can't come. Also, we had still from the Trump era, we have bars from coming to the United States. Some of them have been lifted, but not all. So even if someone is eligible 
able to get the green card. They still can't come. And so they have to wait there. And sometimes this can be extremely bad, not just because of failed employment opportunities or families cannot be joined or even people in a, in countries where the politi- there is political instability like Iran, they might end up in trouble depending on their situation. So it is obviously a concern and hopefully the pandemic will be under control soon so that the U.S. embassies and consulates can operate again. Another issue we have is with Russia. Unfortunately, there are no diplomatic relationship at this time with Russia. So all the U.S. the U.S. embassy and the consulates in Russia currently are processing nothing, not a student visa, a visitor's visa, or green cards. I have um, a client who has been waiting to come over with a fiancé visa for almost two years. And finally, we managed to get her an interview in Warsaw, in Poland. So it sounds like beyond the complex EB5, there's now, you know, COVID added on top of all that. It's really made the process a little bit more complicated, as we described as a roller coaster, right? The roller coaster that we call EB5 hold on tight because uh, what's going to happen next. Also, as you know, the processing times for the first application, the I-526, have lengthened tremendously. I mean, we went from four months processing times to over two years, and it's getting longer. Beginning was because they couldn't um, hire more officers because there was a hiring freeze that was implemented by Trump. And and now there is such a backlog that frankly, uh, it's hard to tackle. I mean, they would have to hire many more people or at least have subcontractors go through the applications. Right. Well, you know, with all the complexity and the whole alphabet list of other visa types that are available to foreign nationals, when would you recommend to your clients to consider EB-5 as the best option? Well, when I meet with a client, we discuss all available options. And usually, if they're not, if there is nothing that they're eligible for, uh, whether it's a national interest visa, whether they're coming here to study and then they get the one year work authorization incidental to the student status and then they get sponsored, then we default to EB5. Uh-huh. Um, You're really describing EB5 as the, the choice of last resort? That's correct, because it's taking so long. Uh-huh. It's not because of the cost? No, my clients actually but don't shy away from the cost because in Europe to get to get what would be permanent residence in Europe is much more expensive. I mean, you go to Portugal and you're looking at more than a million euros. You go to England, it's more than two million. So the actually the program in the United States as as currently is, the, the minimum investment now has been decreased again to 500,000. And when I mean decreased, it's because a court's ruling has that um, the $900,000 increase from a minimum investment was not properly done because the Secretary of Homeland Security wasn't properly elected. And I'm laughing about this because it is such a, it's, it, it's such a small thing if you think about it. It's because the uh, Trump administration was such in a rush to increase the minimum investment, which should be increased. It's been the same since 1990. I mean, in 1990, half a million dollars was a lot of money. Unfortunately, now it, it doesn't have the same buying power. So we should increase it. It should go up to 900,000 or even more because the other countries that compete with the United States for immigration are 
charge you more. It's as simple as that. And the United States, usually it's people's first choice, not Europe, the, not Australia or Canada. It's the United States. It's still the United States. The promise of freedom and the American dream still sells. Fantastic. And so if it so still sells, it's, it's, then we should increase its purchase price. So, so still has the American dream and we're charging uh, too little for it. I guess the part of the American dream is uh, charging the right prices for something that reflects its value. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And I hate the word, I used the word charging and I apologize for that. I don't mean that because it's not like you buy a green card. I mean, the EB-5, it's a vehicle to produce jobs for American citizens. And the deployment of that money serves for this scope. And it also serves to further business, whether it is building infrastructure structure or building farms or skyscrapers, etc. So it, it is not really buying the visa. It is, mm-hmm. it's an investment opportunity to produce 10 full-time jobs for Americans. So it's a win-win. Also, the person, the investor or the beneficiary, if it's, for example, the money comes from the, the family, so the son or the daughter is still considered to be the investor, but they're benefit from the parents' money. They, they still have to go through security check in order to make sure they don't have any criminal activity in their past. They still need to be tested to see that they're medical viable and they have all the vaccinations that we require in the United States. So it's not, you know, you write a check and you get the green card. And also, as I said before, it's taking a really long time, especially if you're from a country with a retrogression like China. And so sometimes you could wait before you get your permanent green card six years. So it's it's not it's not a quick solution. You, you don't just throw money at it and then you get the green card. That's why I use it as a last resort because sometimes some of my clients have extraordinary abilities or they can qualify for a national interest visa or maybe they have a sibling. Well, not a sibling. Sibling takes too long, but maybe... They are planning to get married to a U.S. citizen, and so they go through that, or the employer plans to sponsor them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's much faster to get a green card through an employer, also because the green card you get is permanent, meaning you don't have to remove the conditions. So it sounds like, you know, although many people complain about the, the cost of the, the program going up from $500,000, $900,000, or the fact that the, the program has expired and yes. other uncertainties. For the regional program- centers, yes, the program has expired which is, you know, I had a client we were about to file. Literally, I was missing one piece of evidence for a source of funds. And I said to him, I have to receive it before the end of the month. I didn't receive it. And he's like, I'll send it to you tomorrow. I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> They're not extending the program because usually, as you know, they would extend it a few days before. I mean, they wouldn't wait until the 11th hour. And this time the extension wasn't coming. So I was like, I think we're going to be in trouble. And then the day after when he sent me the evidence, I'm like, well, I can't do anything with it now. And he, he couldn't believe it. It was like, are you serious? I'm like, well, I've been telling you this over and over and over. And The number one um, goal of the EB-5 program from the investor's perspective, we would think is, is immigration. So when an immigration investor or a client comes to you, immigration client comes to you, really they're saying, what is the best and fast and most, I guess, effective way of um, obtaining legal immigration to the United States. And for a while, EB-5 actually was number one, right? I think it was faster than L1s, faster than the E's. Much faster, faster, much faster. Right. And so it was really the the immigration path of choice, first and foremost. And then, then you would look into the other issues about investment and all these things. So what you're saying now is all things being equal, 
the program at 500 or 900,000 is still, in, from an investment perspective, still more attractive than the other programs around the world, not to mention America's a better place. But in terms of competition among the alphabet of other visa types, AB5 is not necessarily the best one now because of the timing and the processing time. Is that the case? Is that what you're saying? That's the case. And also it's the risk. Uh, because sometimes regional centers do fail. And other times it's just people that are not, they don't want to deploy their money for all that amount of time. I mean, before you could get the permanent green car, you know, within two, three years. And now if it's double that, six years at best, uh, obviously that means that your investment has been out there for a longer period of time. Now, yes, we do have new memorandum that facilitates a very deployed employment of the money or if the money has already been placed at risk, it doesn't have to be placed once again at risk. But still, the investor won't have that money back. And now I know that the government is saying inflation is very low, but you and I, Matt, know that if we go out and buy milk, it's double the price of what it used to be. Inflation is a concern. And most of the people that decide to invest with EB-5 are financially sophisticated. So they have an opportunity cost for that investment amount. They could have invested in something else and yield more. They could have started a new business with that money. Very, very interesting. I guess you're taking a different perspective since you're, you know, as the immigration attorney, attorney representing these clients and you see the whole you know gamut of different cases and situations you're really looking at the program from a different perspective which is what makes it the attractive choice as a as an immigration uh, path for for certain people and uh, currently uh, you know program sunset aside and all these other things there may be other options and better options for uh, EB5 investors today I am also oh, immigration law is great because it changes on the basis of when you came to the country if you're already physically present here and where you're from right. it's not an objective form of legal advice it really depends on the individual mm-hmm. so sometimes we'll new programs will be passed like for example we have a new green car program for people from Liberia. So depending on where someone is from, we might have different options. So for me and for my clients, really the EB-5 has become a program of last resort. But if the process in times change, then my my view of it will also change. Mm-hmm. So if we're go if we're going to go back to the first application, meaning the I five twenty six to be processed, so even within eight months, my take on the EB five will change because obviously now it becomes more of a viable option. But right. I cannot. I mean, if when I tell clients it's going to take at best two years to get a decision on the I-526, it's a problem. It's a problem Mm -hmm. because they're like, what do you mean? And can I stay in the United States while it's pending? Well, actually, no, you cannot, unless you have another visa category. And they don't understand that. And, and and I think that is the biggest burden, that they don't understand why it's taking so long. Well, I've always been impressed, Nicole, by the fact that you have such interesting uh, clients from different places around the world. You know, the majority of the EB-5 investors are from China, from India, from Vietnam, and elsewhere. But I always hear from you that you have clients from Liberia, from Nepal, from, you know, countries I've not even heard of. How is it <laughs> that you have such access to these um, you know, diverse set of um, clients who want to immigrate to the United States? I don't know. But frankly, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I guess I am blessed in the sense that because of my foreign travels, I have met people who then pass on my name. 
Otherwise, I'm also members of some association when, in the, when for example, um, when, um, whether it's religious group or ethnic group, like cl- ethnic clubs, that they need mm-hmm. someone to give free advice. Uh, and I'm available. And so, as you know, once your name is out there, then someone else says, oh, you know, you should call this attorney. Also, I went to international schools growing up, especially for high school. And therefore, even friends on Facebook, they were like, oh, you know, you want to immigrate to the United States, you need to call me call. Or sometimes I just get um, people out of LinkedIn, that they just contact me. But a lot of times when I travel abroad, whether I travel for work or I travel for pleasure, people usually will tell, ask me, what, are, what do you do for a living? And when I tell them I'm an immigration attorney, all of a sudden I become very popular. <laughs> you know, we're both uh, graduates of Harvard. Does Harvard send any uh, referrals your way? So people will contact me through LinkedIn, through the Harvard Alumni Network, and also there are some regional centers that are run by Harvard grads and they will send me uh, clients at times. But um, a lot of the clients, yeah, they found me. I have, uh, I mean, currently I have clients from Saudi Arabia. And as you know, citizens of Saudi Arabia, if they become US citizens, so if I want to become US citizens, they need to give up their own citizenship of Saudi Arabia. So that's usually um, hard. I have Palestinian clients. I mean, how many Palestinians do you know that actually apply for the EB-5. Most, most Palestinians cannot afford that. So I definitely have clients from countries that are not popular for the EB-5. Sometimes there is one person from one country. So for example, for BU Dental School, Boston University Dental School, once I, cons- I had a consultation with a dentist from Pakistan who was studying, who's doing a master's at BU Dental. And I don't know, he must have really liked me after him. I must have had 30 to 40 Pakistani clients that he referred to me. So it is sometimes that's what happens. You just get one person that is from one country and then they really like you and spread the word in their community. Well, it sounds like beyond your superpowers of having multiple degrees and multiple interests and world traveled and multiple languages, you also have, you're a magnet for the world's uh, immigration clients, you know, that uh, from, from places that no one's ever heard of. So of course, countries you mentioned, but really, I know that you have some quite intriguing uh, cases that you uh, help. Yes. Also, it's it's funny because sometimes I'll talk to someone. I had a client from Tajikistan lately, and I was I was talking to him. I'm like, oh yes, I've been to Tajikistan. I've been this, and they are so surprised. And like, you <laughs> have been there for asylum purposes. I had a lot of Uyghur Chinese clients from Western China, and that's because I went there. I went there because I wanted to see how the situation was really and the hardships they they were and are facing and because of that because I could relate to the clients then they spread the word that I've been you know to their co-nationals so they should call me if they needed um, help with applying for asylum right so I really do think this is um, your superpower maybe your team superpower that you know you have this ability to have that you know local touch and exposure, you know, beyond the languages, you've also traveled, you know, so many places and you can relate and empathize with these people of different nations. I know uh, that your team, similarly, you yourself were an immigrant to this country. You understand what it's like to have, have gone through this process. Yes. The difficulties and the challenges and the emotional roller coasters that that means. And you really try to help your, your clients through that roller coaster of a process. 
Yeah, and at the office, most of uh, my current attorneys that work with me, and even in the past, they've most of them, but just one has been American. Everybody else has been um, a foreigner. And the reason for that is, is because I know they can relate and they will listen. Well, with with Americans, they, they've been so privileged, you know, since the beginning. And for them, it is hard to understand what it means escaping from, um, you know, a war in Africa, civil war in Africa, and coming over in a container of a ship, hiding. It, they can't understand it. And because they've been privileged, again, it's not it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. They had have been so blessed that they have no idea what that means. Well, as a child, my father used to take me to African countries and I saw their plight from when from when I was a little girl, from since I was six years old. And and so I can I can understand. Maybe I can't relate because I haven't been through that, but I've seen it with my own eyes. Wow, amazing. So, you know, where does EV5 go from here? This is really a, a Hopefully question. Hopefully it can only improve. Now, what happened on June 30th and what do you expect is going to happen um, going forward in terms of the program extension, the investment amounts, the integrity measures and the timing for the above? You know, where yeah. do we where do we go from here? Well, Matt, I think we reach bottom so we can only go up. Yeah, well, I like to have an optimistic view. I think, uh, you know, now senators are coming back from holiday. I think they have a lot of work to do, not just for what regards immigration, but with infrastructure program and et cetera. And I don't, there is a lot of negotiation that needs to happen before the program can be extended. Hmm. And I think uh, the senators have been very lazy and they've just been pushing the extension and for years now and they've never tackled the issues of what needs to be improved in terms of safeguards for investors in terms of more regulation for regional centers and and now you know judgment day has come so to speak and i'm sure we're going to get a lot of pressure from the regional centers because again this regional center businesses they have invested considerable amount of money in order to construct these regional centers and in order to file the application with USCIS. And so far, therefore, it's only right that the senators take these extensions seriously. I'm hoping that by December, we'll have not an extension, but the new guidelines put in place. I hope it's going to go up to back up to 900,000, even a million in order so that um, we still get the best and the brightest coming to the United States. Because in order to keep as to be one of the leading powers in the world, we have to keep contracting the best and the brightest. And some people will tell you that the EB-5 doesn't actually bring the best and the brightest, well, in order to make that money legitimately, because remember, Matt, we need to show that the money was made above board, meaning no crimes, you paid proper taxes, etc. We are attracting the best of the brightest because these people made the money. So obviously, they're at least business savvy. And, and therefore, it's important that we still attract them and we attract them with much shorter processing times. Now, I know President Biden has made that a priority that he's going to shorten 
processing times across the board, not just for EB-5, but he's a politician, so he, he promised a lot. Let's see if he can deliver. And also, to be, to be fair, it's not just about him delivering. It's also about the agency. But the agency is, is really making a 180-degree turn from the past administration. With the past administration, we had a culture of no. Everything we asked was no. And or we would get what I would call the yellow book of requests for additional evidence. And sometimes we requested exactly the same stuff we have already sent them. So uh, now we are seeing that there is more communication with USCIS. Once again, in the pre-Trump, we were able to email directly our field offices for USCIS and get a response. During Trump, that was stuck which was really, uh, really bad because sometimes we'd have a case that is stuck. We could just email the officer and the officer would be like, okay, I found the case and you know what, I'm bringing it here and I'm scheduling it for interview. So it was beneficial because it it uh, freed up the backlogs. And now we are getting into that process again with the Biden administration. So I do believe that processing times will get shorter even for what regards the interviews because a lot the EB-5 investors who are in the United States do have to appear for an interview. Amazing. So where do we go from here? What do you think is the next step for Nicole Mion? What's your next travel step or your next um, uh, career step or your next EB-5 step? And where really for the industry as a whole? What do you predict will be the next step for us? Well, for the industry as a whole, I'm hoping, again, that by December, the program has been reinvented and with its reinvention has become more efficient for both UCIS and the investors and, of course, the lawyers. And But it has clear, clear deadlines in terms of what we need to have a timetable, what it really means applying for the EB-5. Obviously, we'll have ranges, but they need to be to be real ranges. Don't tell me it's going to take between 24 and 54 months to process an I-526. That's not a range. That's a guess. Tell me it's going to take me, you know, even if it's 24 months, it's going to take me between 24 and 26 months or 28 months. Okay, that's a range. But 24 to 56 is not a range. It's guesswork. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping for that. I'm hoping for for more clarity for what regards the T area, targeted employment areas. Because now you'll remember, Matt, that before we could just get a letter from a local government municipality saying this is a TEA area. But now it's up to UCIS to actually determine whether it is a TEA area. I mean, you of course, you make your argument, you give the evidence, but ultimately they have the last word. And I don't like that. Because again, that gives more uncertainty. So what does that mean? That you're going to deny my TA designation. So my minimum investment, my application will be denied because the minimum investment is not enough. We need to go with a higher amount. So I don't like that either. It, it just makes it harder. It makes it harder for me to market the EB-5. Because apart from the risk of losing all your money and not getting the green card, you also have all these other variables. And most businessmen will not find the risk. They will so, go somewhere else. So really, A, you want to improve processing times. B, you want clear definitions. And although in the the pre overturning of the of the um, regulations when we went back we went up to nine hundred thousand 
there was a lot of clarity about the donut and the TEA, and it seemed very clear. You're saying that even that isn't giving you enough assurance and comfort for your you and your clients. No, because I have clients that come for me to come for consultations, but they have processed their visa with someone else, and and their application has been denied because of a TEA. Really? Yeah, and so that's why it's either that the regional centers have not done a good enough job in order to explain. Or it is that some officers have not been trained properly and therefore cannot um, make an informed decision. So it's either or. If it's because of the officer, they need better training. They need clear guidelines, a clear adjudication manual for these officers because they, they, the adjudication needs, it can't be the same for every petition, obviously, because there are differences, but it needs to be more or less decided on the same guidelines. And if the guidelines are not clear to the officers, then we have arbitrary denials. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it seems that um, there is a lot of insurity in what you're describing in terms of the the aptitude of those who are reviewing the petitions and not to mention the the ever-changing regulations that um, these officers have to abide by, that it makes it even harder for the the clients and the investors to ultimately pull that trigger, make that decision to to move forward in EB-5. So, you know, maybe the the exemplar approval is, is a way to help with that problem, mitigate that issue in that the investors would know going in that the project has already been pre-approved. Do you think that uh, would be helpful to the process if all the projects were required to have an exemplar approval? Yes. And I also think it would instill more confidence to investors. However, the timing to get that... uh, I was about to say, but the negative fact, yeah. It could become prohibitive if you have to wait for a period of time to get that exemplar approval, which is longer than your um, offering period, then it might be a moot point. Yes, and that's why I think it they have to hire just we should have a section that just pre-approves the regional centers and then they should have officers that only work on I-526 and other officers um you know that work on the removal conditions. They need mm-hmm. to have different departments so that the adjudication officers can just um become experts in adjudicating just one petition. Right. That will will also spur efficiency. Right. However, if what you're calling for is an increase in the efficiency and the increase in manpower in USCIS to to process these, how many experienced uh, adjudicators can you have if you're really beefing up that manpower? Well, that goes back to training. And then uh, it goes back to lack of funds. Then increase the filing fees for the I-526. I mean, the filing fee is not high for this kind of application. Just double it. Double it or triple it. I mean, I think that investors will be happier to pay a higher filing fees than wait for more than two years. Are there expedited processes and amounts that you could pay for different visa types that would there give you- are. Okay. The problem for that is that you can't adjudicate, I believe, an EB-5 within 14 days. But it could be maybe for three months and you could pay a premium processing of, I don't know, $10,000. And and then obviously paying the premium processing doesn't mean you're getting an approval. It just means you're getting a decision. Right. Um, and, um, and so the problem is that probably everybody would pay that, let's say, $10,000. So it goes back to 
what I was suggesting before, Veja should triple the filing fee for USCIS and hire more people. There are investors um, who have been waiting for a very long time who get their um, immigration attorneys to file mandamus. The problem with the mandamus action, it, it works in the Ninth Circuit. But for example, I'm based in Boston, so I am subject to the First Circuit. And my clients who live in, in the First Circuit uh, also are, are subject to the First Circuit. And the First Circuit is not as benevolent <laughs> in adjudicating mandamus actions as the Ninth Circuit. So I looked into filing a mandamus action for one of my clients, and the case law is not promising. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, are you able... The action would be just dismissed. Are you able to go to another federal court or work with a colleague to possibly file that elsewhere? I could. It, it really depends on the residence of my investor. So if my investor resides in the Ninth Circuit, the ambit of the Ninth Circuit, then I can. I probably could just be admitted to the Ninth Circuit. It's a federal court. So I just need to sign an application and then go and get sworn in. It's not a whole. I could just get do it in conjunction with someone who has got an office and, and is admitted to the Ninth Circuit. Um but a lot of the EB-5 clients live abroad. Right. So, and the case law now for a lot of people want to file the Ninth Circuit, obviously, because it's easier to prevail. And they'll use the argument that the regional center is located in the Ninth Circuit. I just reviewed a case from um, an Armenian who had filed with another firm. And the firm is located in California. The regional center was located, um, if my memory is correct, and uh, they changed venue. Uh, the government asked for a change of venue. And they asked either Washington, uh, D.C., or they, or they asked for Boston because when the investor comes to the United States, he stays in Watertown, which is a suburb of Boston, uh, because he has family there. And so the attorney that represented him agreed to Boston, which was a huge mistake because they said the first first circuit is not favorable. And um, and therefore, that's why he came to me to ask me. And I said to him, I'm sorry, but I don't think. And also the argument, to be fair, for jurisdiction to be in the Ninth Circuit wasn't very strong to begin with. So probably for a client like that, I would never have filed a bandanamous action. Just a waste of time and money for my client. So what I've, what I've heard in summary is that, A, the processing time improvement would be a big leap for yes. the probe, number one. Number two... Is there a lot of things that we could be doing to fund the USCIS and uh, the EB-5 program and create specialists inside of the adjudicators who would be able to more efficiently and also rationally give reviews of these petitions? And finally, that EB-5, unless it can modernize and keep up with the the rest of the world and also with the other visa types, it might get kicked on the side. And and also, you're also asking the uh, the senators and the the politicians to step forward and, and do their part to you know, stop kicking the can and actually pull up the the bootstraps and, and make something happen. Is that uh, correct? That That's correct. Because it said uh, EB-5 is a vehicle to make more employment in the United States. So it's a win-win for all. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why we are just leaving it on the back burner. It makes no sense. Another thing I would like to point out, you correctly stated, well, we need all these new people to come and be trained. The Department of State, which regulates all embassies and consulates, has a mandatory retirement 
age for its officers. I believe it's a it's before 50 years old. So all those officers that let's say they're 50, and obviously they can still work, they're still young enough to work, and they probably want to work, they can go and work for USCIS and be trained. We already know the immigration immigration law. We know EB5 because they're, they interview investors that live abroad. They can be trained though um, how to adjudicate the applications again. And we have all this, as I said, we have this, all these officers that are going to be retired and we can just train them uh, specific to adjudicating a, a form and then deploy them. Nicole, this is exactly why I like having these discussions and talks with uh, EB5 superheroes like yourself, because you are innovative, you're thoughtful about how we can improve the program and make things better for all of the investors and, and foreign nationals to achieve their American dreams. So I want to thank you today, Nicole, Mayan, for all the things you're doing for your clients and for America and for all of us who are reaching to achieve the American dream. So thank you again for your time. And where can we find you, Nicole? Well, you can find me on the web always at www.immsolutionsllc.com or you can email me directly at M. I-C-O-L at I-M-M solutions with an S LLC.com Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Nicole. I look forward to hearing great things and onward and upward. That's a wrap. Nicole Mian and other EB5 superheroes like her are the industry's best and brightest. We're flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.